afternoon we deal with Scripture's teaching about who is where at the Lord's Supper, and we'll read Lord's Day 30 where the church summarizes the Bible's teaching on this. Lord's Day 30, page 545 in the Book of Praise. So here the church confesses the teaching of Scripture in the following way. What difference is there between the Lord's Supper and the people mass? The Lord's Supper testifies to us first that we have complete forgiveness of all our sins through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself accomplished on the cross once for all. And second, that through the Holy Spirit we are grafted into Christ, who with his true body is now in heaven at the right hand of the Father, and this is where he wants to be worshipped. But the Mass teaches, first, that the living and the dead do not have forgiveness of sins through the suffering of Christ unless he is still offered for them daily by the priests. And second, that Christ is bodily present in the form of bread and wine and there is to be worshipped. Therefore, the Mass is basically nothing but a denial of the one sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ and an accursed idolatry. Who are to come to the table of the Lord? Those who are truly displeased with themselves because of their sins, and yet trust that these are forgiven them, and that their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ, and who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and amend their life. But hypocrites and those who do not repent eat and drink judgment upon themselves." are those also to be admitted to the Lord's Supper, who by their confession and life show that they are unbelieving and ungodly. No. For then the covenant of God would be profaned, and his wrath kindled against the whole congregation. Therefore, according to the command of Christ and his apostles, the Christian church is duty-bound to exclude such persons by the keys of the kingdom of heaven until they amend their lives. And after the sermon, we'll respond by singing Psalm 23, which speaks about the Lord setting the table before us. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, if you're working with electricity, it's important to get it right. Electricity well done means comfort and convenience and in the winter, warmth. But if we get it wrong, we can cause short circuits and we can cause a fire and the house can burn down or we can get electrocuted and we can even die. So it's important to get electricity right. It's a very powerful thing. Well, all the more powerful is the power of God unto salvation, the gospel. And the gospel comes to us through the word preached. The gospel also comes to us through the word made visible in the sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism. And it's important to get it right. If you don't get it right, it either doesn't work or it can hurt you. And it can even kill you. We read about that when Paul writes to the Corinthians. He says, you're not getting the Lord's Supper right. That's why some of you have fallen asleep. You've, some of you have died because you're not doing the Lord's Supper right. 
Now, the Catechism spends a lot of time talking about baptism and the Lord's Supper because they're so important and because we need to get them right. And this afternoon, our Lord's Day, Lord's Day 30, comes after a whole pile of Lord's Days which deal with different aspects of the sacraments. This afternoon, what is especially in focus is who is where at the Lord's Supper. And God teaches us in the Scripture, and we confess, therefore, in the Catechism, that God decides. God teaches us who is where at the Supper. First of all, Jesus is in heaven. The believer is at the table. And finally, the ungodly are excluded. Well, we confess it every week, so it's not difficult for us to bring into our minds where Jesus is. What do we, what, what we just sing when we sang the creed? He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he shall come again. Where is the Lord Jesus? All of the little kids know where the Lord Jesus is. He's in heaven. What does the angel say to the apostles when they're staring up into the clouds after the Lord ascended. They say, men of, men of, men of Israel, why, why are you staring? Why are you sitting there looking at the clouds for? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen is being stoned and he's about to die and full of the Holy Spirit, he looks up and he, he sees the heavens opened and he, he gazes into heaven and he sees the glory of God. And guess who he sees at the right hand? It's the Lord Jesus. He sees him. That's where Jesus is. That's what the Bible teaches and because the Bible teaches it, that's what we confess here in the Catechism. We've already confessed it back in Lord's Day 18 as well. And back in Lord's Day 18, we confess that he is there for our benefit. It is good for us that he's there. So we're clear from Scripture, and therefore the church clearly confesses that the Lord Jesus Christ in his human nature, his physical body, is in heaven. And you would think it's pretty easy and pretty obvious and that nobody should have a problem with that. But the medieval church, the Church of Rome, took the sacramental language of Scripture and pressed it to such a point that they identified the sign with the thing signified in the Lord's Supper. They confused the symbols which are supposed to lift up our eyes and point us to Christ in heaven. And they said, no, this is the reality. Christ is right here in the Mass. And as we read the Catechism this afternoon, we got to the end of question answer 80, we came upon maybe the sharpest, or what is certainly the sharpest point in the Catechism. The Catechism is very nice and pleasant and comforting document, very kind and, and, and a sweet document, which always talks about how wonderful it is and, and how much benefit we get from the doctrines of the Scripture. But here the Catechism spoke very sharply. Did you notice that the, at the end of question answer 80? 
The Mass is nothing but a denial of the one sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ and a cursed idolatry. Those are hard words. Why would the Catechism say that? We've got to remember that the Catechism was written in a time when Roman Catholicism was trying to maintain its grasp on all of Europe. And they didn't want people to move away from the teaching of Rome. And they went through great lengths, even persecution and imprisonment and even killing people to hold onto Rome's power. And Rome taught that the bread, the wafer, and the wine actually are Jesus. They're his blood and they're his body. And so they would worship them. The, the priests would lift them up and people would prostrate themselves. They would, they would parade the consecrated elements through the streets. They still do. I don't know about here in Canada, but I know in South America, they parade the consecrated elements through the streets and people worship the little piece of bread and the little bit of wine. And after they've consecrated the wafer, the host, and the wine, and if there's anything left over, they put it in a little special golden container, which they call the tabernacle. And that's where Jesus' body and blood sit in the church. So what are they doing? Well, they're taking Christ down out of heaven and bringing him to the altar. And in every mass, they're sacrificing him all over again. In fact, one Roman Catholic theologian says this, you know what? The mass is such an efficacious and powerful sacrifice that even if the Lord Jesus had never died on the cross, it's okay. It's not a problem because the mass is worth the same. It's just as powerful to forgive sins as Christ dying on the cross. Well, don't take my word for it. Listen to the Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church. I'm, I'm not quoting the Heidelberg here. I'm quoting the Roman Catholic Catechism. This is what they say. The sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist, that's the Lord's Supper, are one single sacrifice. The victim is one and the same. The same now offers through the ministry of the priests who then offered himself on the cross. Only the manner of offering is different. They're saying, Jesus died on the cross, and the mass, it's the same thing. Jesus is being sacrificed for sinners. And they, they continue, and since in this divine sacrifice, which is celebrated in the mass, the same Christ who offered himself once in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross is contained and is offered in an unbloody manner this sacrifice is truly propitiatory. What does that mean? It means that when you do the Mass, where is Jesus? He's not up in heaven. He's down here. He's on the table, physically, bodily, being sacrificed, and that sacrifice is actually taking away sins. So Romanists understand that the mass is an actual sacrifice of the actual body and actual blood of Jesus, and that taking the mass actually cleanses you from sin. And you can understand why they come to this conclusion. 
We have to understand when we see heresy, when we see bad teaching, bad doctrine, it just doesn't come out of a vacuum, out of nowhere. There's often a reason for it. And if you look at the Scripture, you look at Matthew chapter 26, for instance, where the Lord is speaking to His disciples on, on the, the night when He was betrayed, and he, 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 he does the Lord's Supper, and He says to them, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is my blood, and it's poured out for the forgiveness of sins. So, that's what people run with, and that's how they get to the doctrine of the mass. But what does the Bible really say about this? Well, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 9. We read Hebrews 9, Let's look at it a little more closely now. What does the Bible say? The Bible says, and Hebrews just repeats this over and over, that the Lord Jesus is not just another regular priest bringing another regular sacrifice to a physical temple. What does it say? Look at 9.25. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. There's a, there's a contrast here that the apostle is making between repeating and once. Look at it at the end of verse 26 now. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. If you look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10, what does it say? And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus, how many times? Once for all. Now, the Church of Rome, every day, all around the world, is declaring the death of Jesus was not sufficient. We need to sacrifice Jesus again, every day, to take away your sins. In Rome's teaching, it's never finished. It's never done. And that's why for the Romanist, the worst heresy of the Protestant is not justification by faith. The worst heresy of the Protestant is assurance that we know that Christ has died for our sins, that we know our sins are all washed away because he's done it. It is finished. He yelled it from the cross. But the Romanist says, no, it's not done. We've got to sacrifice him again and again and again. Have you ever thought about that, that's why the Roman churches have crucifixes, not empty crosses. The empty cross is the symbol of Christianity. It goes right along with the empty tomb. But in Roman churches, Jesus is still hanging there. And if you've visited a Roman Catholic church, you see that he's still bleeding and he's still suffering because it is never finished. And there's no gospel there. There's no hope and there's no assurance. That's why the catechism says this is bad stuff. This is an accursed idolatry. They're bowing down to bread and to wine and they're teaching something which denies the gospel. 
If we move on to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11, and we read that. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Look at verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So where is Jesus in the Holy Supper? He's not in the bread. He's not in the wine. He's in heaven at the right hand of God. The sacrifice has been sacrificed. The payment has been paid. It is finished. It is done. He has done it. And he gets up from the grave. He ascends into heaven. He walks into the Holy of Holies, not the copy, but the real one up there. He goes past the curtain, past the veil of God's glory. He goes past the cherubim, the guardians of God's holiness and glory, the cherubim that say to sinners, stay out or you'll die. He just walks right by them. And he does all this as our federal head, as our covenant head, as our last Adam, as the head of a new human race. And he sits down. He sits down. Now, in the temple, no priest ever sat down. There were no seats to sit down on. Their work was never done. But the Lord Jesus walked in and sat down. It was finished. Now, we by faith, says the Scripture, we enter with boldness into the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up. We by faith are lifted up in Christ into heaven, and the bread and the wine say to us, you are a part of this. Jesus says to us in the supper, you belong to me. You are in me, I am in you. So if I'm seated in the heavenly places, then you are seated with me in the heavenlies. I am the head. You are the body. The same spirit lives in us both. I am the groom. You are the bride. We belong together. What belongs to me belongs to you. We are a one flesh marriage. Where I am, you belong. What I have is all yours. All my righteousness, all my holiness, all my payment, all my innocence, all my purity, it's all yours. And so as we take that bread and, and swallow it and it becomes part of us, as it feeds us, as we drink that wine, as it refreshes us and nourishes us, that's what the Lord Jesus is teaching us. Lift up your eyes. Don't look at the symbols. It's right there in the Lord's Supper form. We read it every time. Lift up your eyes and see the victorious Jesus, our salvation, our redemption at the right hand of God. So that's the, the first thing we, we learn from this Lord's Day, where the Lord Jesus is. He's in heaven. And secondly, we'll look at the, the second point. The believer is at the table. The believer belongs at the table. Every true believer belongs at the table. The Lord's Day is coming before Lord's Day 30 have been very clear about that, that in the sacrament, Christ nourishes my hungry and thirsty soul 
The sacrament is a means of grace in the, the dry, dusty desert of this life. The, the sacrament is, is like a pipeline of life-giving and refreshing water. And we can drink deeply. It's a means of grace. God fills our lives and our hearts with grace through the sacrament. Every believer belongs at the table of the Lord. Who, look at the, look at the language here of question answer 81. Who is truly displeased with themselves because of their sins? Only a believer can say that. Because they belong body and soul to the Lord Jesus Christ. They know their sin and misery. They know their salvation. They know how to live in thankfulness. Who trusts that their sins are forgiven and their remaining weaknesses covered? Only a believer can say that and trust that. Who desires to strengthen their faith and amend their life? Only a believer can desire that. Who says, I need Christ more than I need life itself? Only a believer. Who hungers and thirsts for Christ? Only a believer. Who should come to the table? Only believers. Every one of them. All of them. Notice what we confess here, brother and sister. We're not confessing who are to come to the table of the Lord, only people that belong to our church, only people that belong to this denomination or that denomination. That's not what we confess because that's not what the Bible teaches. Believers belong at the table. What does the Song of Solomon say? He brought me to the banqueting house and his banner over me was love. It's a feast that the groom sets for the bride. And the bride delights to accept the loving invitation to intimate fellowship at the table. The table is not for the good, not for the perfect, not for the sinless, not for the worthy in themselves. The table is for the broken, for the hurting, for the struggling, the suffering, the frustrated with my slow sanctification. The one thing that unites us all to each other and all of us to Christ is the faith that he has given us. The faith that knows that there is no hope in my own works and in my own merit. The faith that knows that Christ is the only hope. The faith that knows that what Christ has done has given me righteousness. The faith that longs for his spirit to keep working sanctification in me so that I am transformed by his power from glory to glory into the image of Christ. The table's for the believer. But anyone who comes to the table in open or in secret unbelief, Anyone who is not displeased with their sin but kind of likes their sin and doesn't want to give it up. Anyone that doesn't trust that sin is forgiven because they figure they don't really need forgiveness. Anyone that doesn't desire sanctification and to amend their life and to grow in holiness. Well, the Bible teaches and we confess that those kind of people are playing with high voltage power. Is very dangerous. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to believe when it's used rightly and properly. It is the power to bring life out of death, 
to change hearts of stone into hearts of flesh and faith. It is the power to turn a life of darkness and sin into life and love and light. But it's also the power of judgment and wrath to those who continue in their unbelief, impenitence, and ungodliness. And that's why we'll look in the, the last point at the fact that the ungodly are excluded. You see, the Lord's Supper is not just a memorial meal. It's not just kind of like reminding us about Jesus and about his sacrifice. It's real. Something happens in the supper. Let me, I don't know if this will help, but let me try. If we're using the analogy of electricity, the sacramentalist position, which is the position of Rome, says the switch, the switch is the power, even if it's disconnected from the grid. The switch, it is the power. It can change your life even if it's disconnected from everything. And we're like, well, that doesn't really work. That's not what the Bible says. But then there's another group of uh, Christians that aren't sacramentalists. They're memorialists. They say, well, the supper is just kind of remembering. It's just remembering that Jesus was here and that he died. And they would be people that would say, well, the switch is on the wall just to remind us that there is such a thing as electricity. But we don't really expect anything to happen when we turn it on. The biblical and the reformed approach is to see that switch as simply a means through which God will deliver something very real to us. When you flip the switch, when you're connected to the power and the glory of the gospel, the grace of God in Christ by faith and by the work of the Spirit, then you experience a real and powerful experience of the glory and grace of God in Christ. Something happens at the supper. Our souls are nourished. Our faith is strengthened. But it only happens for those who are connected to Christ by faith. It doesn't happen for people that just have their names on the membership roll of a certain church or certain denomination. Now, when we talk about who should be admitted, then both the catechism and the scripture are not in the first place thinking of people outside the community of God's people. We read that from 1 Corinthians. Paul says, listen, I'm not talking about unbelievers. I'm talking about people in the church that are not converted and that do not live a new life. The question is this. People who say that they are in covenant with God but show no fruit of that, no sign that it's real, the fruit they show is the fruit of unbelief and godlessness in their life. What does the church have to do with those kinds of people? Well, turn to Psalm 50, verse 16 for a moment. Psalm 50, verse 16. This is what God says about people in his covenant who are still living in sin. 
and don't show the fruit of faith and repentance. Psalm 50, verse 16, we'll read a few verses. But to the wicked God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. Now remember, God's talking to his people here. He's not talking to unbelievers. He's not talking about people that are not in covenant with him. He's talking about his church. Verse 19, you give your mouth free reign for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. The Lord says to his people, listen, you've been living in sin. You've been living in sexual perversion and, and deceit, and you're you're gossiping about each other and cutting each other up and slandering each other behind each other's backs. And, and because I didn't do anything about it right away, you think that I'm okay with that. Well, I'm not. Well, let's, let's see what he says now. Verse 22. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me to one who orders his way rightly I will show the salvation of God. Now look at verse 22 again. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The God of the gospel is not Canadian. He is not very nice. Canadians, we as Canadians, we like to, to just always be positive and, 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 and pleasant and, and we try to avoid the unpleasant things. But the gospel gives us some very uncomfortable and unpleasant truths. And one of them is right here in verse 22. If you fake it, if you think you can fool God, if you think you can keep embracing your sin and, and wallowing in it and keep on the outside pretending to be in fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, God says, I am going to tear you apart. I'm going to destroy you. That's not a good place to be, brother and sister. That's not a good place to be to be under God's covenant wrath. Unworthy partakers eat and drink judgment on themselves. Why? Because they profane the covenant. They profane what is holy. They bring down God's burning wrath upon them. That's what happened in the church in Corinth. You know, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 Paul says, listen, you're not discerning the body. You're not, you're not cluing in as to what's happening here, that you're in fellowship with Christ and with his holy people and that you need to be living a life of holiness and you're not discerning the body. You're treating the holy things of God as profane, as common. And so you're dying and you're suffering and you're under God's wrath. Brother and sister, it's very simple what the gospel teaches us. You either love sin or you love Christ. You've got to pick one. You either love death or you love life. You've got to pick one. How long, says the prophet, will you go on limping between two different opinions? Now, the church cannot judge hearts. God will judge the hypocrites God will judge the people who fake it. 
We can't look into the heart of anyone. We've got to judge by the fruit. But there are people who show that they shouldn't participate. They show it by their life of ungodliness. And the church needs to do something about that. The church needs to know the confession and the life of each person at the table. They've got to know who this person is. They've got to know what they believe. They've got to know the elders. They need to know whether that person lives out their faith. And that's why the church has procedures in place to guard the holiness of the table. It's very simple. Do you believe? Then you belong at the table. But belief looks like something. Do you live your faith? Does it show someone who says, Christ, 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 but wallows around in the muck of sin and enjoys sin and likes sin and doesn't want to give sin up and is addicted to sin and is not displeased with his sin and doesn't long for forgiveness, doesn't long for growth in the new life, doesn't long for more Christ. That person makes a mockery of the gospel and of the Christ and despises the word and the holy sacrament. And there are consequences, not just in the Old Testament, but also in the New. God doesn't change. The wrath of God is kindled against that person. But look what we confess, also against the whole congregation. Now, in our very individualistic time, we have a hard time swallowing that. What do you mean the wrath of God is kindled against the whole congregation? You know, if somebody comes and participates in the supper and they participate unworthily, that's between them and God. No, it's not. Look what we confess. The wrath of God will be kindled against the whole congregation. Just because we live in the most individualistic culture in the history of the world doesn't change the truths of God's word. And we're so, there's just so much, we're just so steeped in individualism that we think it's normal. We often can't even understand some of the things in the scripture because the individualistic culture in which we live is a new thing. It's a very recent thing in the history of the human race. We don't have time to go into it, but let me just point out to you the, what happened uh, with Achan. You remember Achan, children? When the people of God were entering the promised land and the Lord said, don't take anything from Jericho. All of those things are, are dedicated to destruction. You can't take any of the spoils. And what did Achan do? He said, well, there's going to be an exception for me because I see some really shiny, valuable stuff that I'm going to take and I'm going to hide underneath my tent. And then what happens? At the next battle, Israel gets, it gets defeated. And Joshua's very sad. And Joshua falls down and he weeps. And he seeks the Lord's face. And the Lord sounds a little bit irritated, actually, when you read there in Joshua. The Lord says, well, what are you doing lying on the ground there? Joshua, Israel has sinned. Israel. He doesn't say Achan has sinned. He says Israel has sinned and taken the devoted things. You see, when sin has happened to the people of God and that sin is not dealt with, then the guilt is corporate. Again, we're not talking about hidden secret sins of the hypocrites. We're talking about public sin. Do you think nobody saw Achan walking through the streets of Jericho with those shiny things under his arm and those garments, those rich royal garments? 
Do you think his family didn't notice him digging the hole under the tent and burying them? Do you think that nobody saw? The sin happened. The sin was public. The sin was, toler the sin was tolerated. And God's wrath descends upon the whole church. That's the way God operated back in the Old Testament. God doesn't change, brothers and sisters. If sin is tolerated in the congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, his anger will be kindled against the whole congregation. That's why the elders take so much care to prayerfully and firmly and lovingly go after sinners and deal with their sin. That's why the elders leave their wives and children for yet another evening to go out on another visit and to do more prayers and more scripture readings and more pleading with sinners to repent. That's why the elders take their job seriously. Because the, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ cannot and does not tolerate public and unrepented of sin in her midst. And so the scripture says we need to judge. Let's not spend all our time judging people out there, the people that don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. God is quite capable of judging them. What does the apostle say? Purge the evil person from among you. Let's turn there to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Exclude, says the apostle. And we live in a time when exclusion is a dirty word. We've got to be inclusive. Everybody's going to be included. Even the most perverse things have to be included. You know, in God's world and in God's word, inclusion is not always a good thing. If I have a cancerous tumor in my body, then I don't want to be inclusive. I want to exclude that thing as quickly as possible because it's going to kill me. Now, Paul kind of speaks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and in verses 8 and following. He's talking about leaven and a lump, and, and, and it's kind of hard for us to understand because we don't know the background perhaps, but it's talking about yeast, that yeast works its way through the dough, and it grows and it grows and it grows. And that's a picture of something that, that is evil, malice, evil. And if malice and evil isn't cut away and thrown away, it just keeps growing and growing and growing. We know that, don't we? Sin is like a cancer in our lives, and if we don't deal with it firmly, it just wants to start taking over. And sin also is a cancer in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Purge the evil person from among you. That's what the gospel says. Now, how this is done varies from church to church, but the principles are the same. The elders have the authority and the elders have the responsibility to treat the table in all holiness and to guard the table in all holiness. 
So Lord's Day 30, God teaches us who is where at the supper, and we confess that truth in Lord's Day 30. Jesus is in heaven. The believer is at the table. The godly, the ungodly are excluded. You know, that's a taste of heaven. A taste of heaven when the believers are gathered around that table. And the unbeliever and the unrepentant has no place in their midst. That's a taste of heaven because that's the way heaven is. In heaven, there is no room for those who love sin. In heaven, there is no room for those who love to do bad things to people, to other people. There is no room for people that love bad things. But in heaven, at the eternal wedding feast of the Lamb, there is only Christ and us, all believers, and pure, eternal love, joy, and peace. That's what we're looking forward to, and that's what we're getting the first taste of every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Amen.